Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Kelly Garrido. I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds. Um, Great Data Minds is a collective of passionate data activists, and we are on a mission to modernize the world of data. And so we do this in two different ways. The first is that we have our services arm. This is at gdminnovationlabs.com. This is where we have strategic planning, education, and the deployment of critical data projects. Um, these can be done either in-house in, -house in uh, the, our clients' environments or in our newly launched innovation labs environment. So uh, that is definitely where the projects and the heavy lifting happens. And then we also create great content and host lots of events just like this one today. Um, and that's at greatdataminds.com. And so those are the two ways to find us. So a little bit of housekeeping for us is that this is a webinar. So of course our cameras and microphones um, of our attendees are gonna be off, but we wanna hear from you. Um, so we'll be manning the QA and the chat as you gentlemen get into the discussion. Uh, so I would welcome our participants to hit us up along the way. Um, and then we'll also leave, of course, some time at the end for a more formal QA session. Uh, and so today we are in for a great conversation with a good friend of the company, Bill Franks, who is an author and data expert. Um, a little bit about Bill. He is the director of the Center for Statistics and Analytical Research within the School of Data Science and Analytics at Kennesaw State University. Uh, he's also the CAO, Chief Analytics Officer for the International Institute for Analytics, and you serve uh, on many different advisory boards uh, like ActiveGraph, Asperient, Data Prime, Data Sears, and Kavi Global. Of course, also Bill is the uh, established author of multiple books, including the one that we are going to um, review today. So thank you so much for being with us, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. And then, of course, we have our very own Mike Lampa, who is our chief analytics officer here at Great Data Minds. Mike is a true transformation agent who has been working with enterprises to modernize their analytics programs from the ground up. He's got a boatload of experience as an executive analytics practitioner, both as a consultant and as an employee in Global 100 uh, Enterprises. Um, and Mike, I will turn the floor to you. Thank you, Kalia. And uh, thank you for the opening. Good morning, Bill. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. A um, little stuffed up, so please bear with me. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I, I'd like to start out, you know, first of all, brilliant book, right? I, I, I sat down to read it and it then ended up being a page turner for me. I, not, I went through, I read that book in one day, which is, you know, incredibly un unusual for me because I never did take the Evan Wood speed reading course. So I am a slow word by word reader, but your book was a page turner for me. Um, some, some things that jumped out for me in, in the forward and then reinforced in your pre uh, preface to the book was um, what we need to be able to do is get to three questions, all right? Get three questions answered. And, you know, uh, Kirk Bourne, uh, uh, I loved his, little, his input. It was like, define the what? Help them understand so what, and then help them understand now what, right? And and then you you reinforced it talking about the goal of building presentations and delivering presentations that are data driven, um, because if if we're doing data driven presentations, the goal here is we're trying to move the needle around transformation, and I love how you laid it out, Bill. Is like. We have to understand, we have to help the audience understand the findings, right? And that finding, of course, is going to be backed by data. And then we need to help them understand the, and grasp the implication of those findings upon them and their area of the organization. And then we help to 
need to help them understand here's the recommendations for action and guide them towards taking those actions. Right? At the end of the day, I think that's the prize. If I keep the eye on the, that prize, I'm going to have a successful delivery of a presentation. Don't know if that was your intent, but that's what I took away. <laughs> no, I think that's true. And I think the, the key thing to, that people need to keep in mind when they're putting together a presentation, uh, especially a, a technical one based on analytics, like uh, the folks that uh, we all deal with do, is that people get caught up in the details that they want to talk about or the steps that they took. But at the end of the day, it's getting that business sponsor or non-technical person to actually you take action on what you found. And so that's that's the key. You got to take yourself out of it. You got to put your your mindset in their head. What do they need to see in here? And what do they what do they want to do or not do? And how are you going to help them along that path? Yeah. And that that'll substantively change. If you can force yourself to do that, it will help you change what you by default want to do as a technical person, which is often but way too much detail. And and um, in my humble opinion, this book really is a great handbook to help people learn how to effectively do exactly that. But how did the bill come about, Bill? The book, Just well, curious. you know, I've written about various aspects of, of presenting over the years in my blog. And then when I came to the university, I was, uh, you know, I teach a master's level capstone course and the project, it's, it's a project-based course. So it's not a, it's not a, a classroom setting where I'm lecturing or teaching, it's literally a company will bring in a data set and a problem, and then the students have to have to solve it. And because most classes focus on the uh, academic methods and such, I actually focus mine on the presentation and the delivery. So uh, their their bulk of the students' grades are as a team. How do they? How well do they compile and present the results? And it was interesting because, you know, I I, I see presentations that need work in business all the time, even from experienced people. But you see students, master students, you know, a lot of them are in their early to mid twenties and some are older with work experience, but they, you know, they've never been taught some of these things. And some of the presentations that I'd see in the initial drafts just made so many easy to see errors and, and mistakes. And then I would explain to them what their mistakes were and then they'd fix it pretty quickly. And I realized, you know, a lot of these mistakes until you hear about them, you know, they're obvious once you know, but until someone tells you, you might not think about it. And seeing the improvement the students made, that's when I decided I'm going to go ahead and, and document a lot of these things so that uh, people can, can hopefully, rather than learning the hard way or learning over time, pick up a lot of, of quick tips to help them you know, on their next presentation you know, as soon as they're done. Mm -hmm. So I said that we owe a debt of gratitude to the 2020, 2021 Data yeah. Science 7900 class at Kennesaw. Thank you, folks, because <laughs> this is really a good outcome. Um, so uh, the book is organized around um, seven sections. And and when I you know looked at it again, it's really broken. Those seven sections are grouped together into three themes. There's the preparation theme, uh, you know, preparation slash planning theme. And then there's the development of the content theme and then there is the delivery of that content um, and within the book and within each of those sections you have many very prescriptive tips for people to follow some some are very succinct and tactical some are more you've got to get this in your head it, it, it's more 
practice and technique, right? Um, we won't be able to get through the 119 tips. We'd have to do them. We'd have to give each one 15 seconds, I think, to get through <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but I do want to, you know, kind of talk to the the, the different sections. Um, and then I think there's some tips that would be uh, worthy of drilling into, or maybe even yeah. showing some of the visuals from the book, Bill. Um, the intended audience, this is pretty much applicable to anyone, isn't it? Yeah, I, I positioned it. So, so that's what an interesting point is that, you know, I come from an analytics background and I say the other books I've written are pretty much focused and targeted to you're either in analytics and data science or you're in, you know, an IT role that supports them or a business role that works with them, right? It, it's a pretty tight community around the analytics discipline. This book, though, it's about presenting technical information to a non-technical audience. And so it applies 100% to, to the space that we deal in. But, you know, business people present technical data to other business people all the time, right? A marketing team presents marketing results to each other. You have engineers presenting information, chemists presenting information. So I think really, if you're ever gathering information, particularly if there's a technical source for that information and having to present it to others, I believe the, uh, you know, the content applies. And so there's a, there's a much broader applicability of some of these, uh, some of these themes. Of course, I use analytics-oriented examples uh, throughout but I think uh, I think it's not hard for people in some other disciplines to, to easily see how those would apply to them. It struck me that way exactly. So let's get into the, the section one, which is a one of the uh, within the planning um, uh, theme. Why is this reviewing the strategic fundamentals so critical? Why is this first step so critical, Bill? Well, you know, the the catch is. A lot of people want to jump straight into um, developing, right? Hey, let's go start a presentation. And the, the key is you've really got to be thinking through a number of, of, of things about, you know, who are you presenting to and what are you trying to get across? What do you want them to do? All of these things and then laying out the strategy for the presentation. And so if you don't take the time to lay it out properly up front, it doesn't matter you know, if, if you make a very pretty but completely missing the mark presentation, you're going to lose. And so I think to, to keep in mind some of these basic principles is just critical from the get-go. Um, and you have to take the time and force yourself to, to go through those steps because it's very easy to skip them because you feel like you're under time pressure. My, my belief is you'll save time in the long run when you get in the discipline of going through all the steps properly. Mm -hmm. And, and something that, that struck me um, throughout the book, and I'll mention this um, uh, it, in reinforce this in other sections as well. Um, you brought you brought out some group facilitation uh, disciplines within the book. I don't know if it was intended or not, but things like as part of preparation, make sure you know your audience. All right? um, that struck me as as very important that you got to do that homework because how do you know you're going to tell the right story, right? Um, and there's other things in there that, that you called out um, that knowing the audience was real important to me. Um, a couple of the other ones, like be yourself, uh, embrace uh, the story you're telling, not just the facts. What, what are some of the other key things from your perspective, Bill? Yeah, I think a couple of the key things I, I hammer home in this section is to re is that uh, while it's uncomfortable for technical people to believe this, having accurate and factual information is, in my opinion, less than half the battle. In other words, 
if you have really solid, correct results, we would like to think that's all that matters. In reality, it's not only not all that matters, but I think it's less than half of what matters. The other half plus, right, wrong, or indifferent, it's just how it is, is how well you package and present those results. So we've all seen the cases where somebody came in, really had done some great work, got into all kinds of gory details, lost the audience, and nothing happened, even though they had tremendous results. I've also seen on the flip side, some analytics I thought were pretty weak, but they got presented very well and got everybody excited. So I'm not suggesting that uh, you don't need to have accurate results. I believe you, you obviously do, uh, but you can't just sit back and say, our results are so solid, we're set. You got to put the time in. And then with that, you, you know, you, you hit at it. The, the whole point of a presentation is for you to describe what you found and why it matters. And, it, and the, the attention should be on you. So one of the biggest mistakes people make is first putting way too much on their slides, you know, then reading their slides or, or, or just losing the audience in that detail. You want to have slides that are as basic as possible to get across a, a, any given point you're going to make during the live presentation. And that's a really important point here. This whole book is focused on a live presentation. There's different, you know, many of the tips in the book wouldn't apply to a written document because a written document, people are going to read on their own time. Um, you, you know, obviously people expect a little more. So I think it's that, that key of remembering that you're giving a live presentation where the focus should be on you and your narrative and the story you're telling. And whatever slides you do put up should have the minimal amount of information required to, to help support the points that you're making. Everything else can wait. Uh, for a later, uh, you know, a, a later uh, written document or follow-up conversation. Yeah, how many times I've, I've found myself doing exactly that? I want to write, I want to put all sorts of written text into the slide, um, uh, as opposed to, well, wait a minute, those are my speaker notes. Why don't I put those like in a notes section of the slide? Why do I? Why am I making an audience read a bunch of stuff? Um, well, I like to, yeah, it, it, it's worse than that, Mike. Because if they're reading that stuff, they're specifically not listening to you. you. And so what you've done, you've lost the audience. Now they're reading your stuff. And on top of that, they're beginning to think about, interpret, and make decisions on that stuff while not hearing your narrative and not hearing your context. And now you have to, you have to change their minds, which is very mm -hmm. hard to do. Right. So I think that's the most important thing is you just always want the, 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 uh, the focus back on you. So I'll just show you. Let me, let me maybe... Um, I'll just show an example of a really horrible slide that illustrates what we're talking about and a better way to of, do it. Probably so, one of mine, huh? <laughs> <laughs> not one of yours, but, but one that we've all seen tons of these. This is intentionally oh, hideous, right? I mean, nobody, I actually, I'd love to say nobody would actually present this. I have seen people present things, probably have more than this in a smaller font. But the point is, even when I'm in an audience today, still, when people put up a lot of text like this, I find myself reading. And if you actually took the time to read this, you'd see most of the text is a little bit nonsensical, but you still can't help yourself from reading it. But that whole time, you're not listening. So the point is, for a live presentation, there's just a few key things that we want to get across. There's those four points. And if I just go back and forth, notice in top of each orange box is action and then a little thing. That's really the key points we need to get across. I can verbalize whatever else I want very quickly and easily from a slide like this. In fact, I would probably use animations to have each of these four points pop up one at a time. I'll talk about alerting leadership. I'll talk about developing a plan. And you know, I'm hitting the next to have it build out. 
And the beauty of it using animations in a scenario like this is that if I print this out as a leave behind in a PDF, for example, they'll see it all because the animations aren't there. But while I'm presenting, I'm keeping their attention focused. And even if they read this entire slide, you're done in like two seconds and your attention's right back. So that's really a, a, a key that people have to keep in mind. Actually, I love it. So don't write your story, tell it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. That's one of the tips. Don't write, yeah. don't write, write your story, tell your story. There's something else you, you mentioned in uh, tip uh, eight, uh, that short presentations are much more difficult to prepare for than long ones. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, and this this gets back to, we always have so much information that we love to tell. And, and I always say, this is true. When someone tells me I'm going to have an hour to present, I don't even, you know, I'm like, okay, great. I know I'm going to have no trouble filling an hour. When they tell me 45 I'm like, okay, it'll be a little, I'll have to tone it down a bit. At 30, I start to feel like, okay, I'm going to have to really think this through. And at 20 minutes, and a lot of conferences in particular are starting to go to 20 minute presentations. That's really hard. And the reason is you have a whole variety of information, all of which has some relevance, all of which might, might have some value. But the shorter you make the presentation, the more you're going to have to cut additional information cuts more of your narrative and you have to really get down to the ultimate essence. It's almost like, you know, if you remember cliff notes or whatever they're called these days, um, you know, where instead of reading a book, students would go and get these little uh, summaries of the, of the books, you know, it's the same thing, but, but you're, you're cutting it down further and further. And the advantage of that, actually, while it's very hard to do, it really forces you to be focused. I think oftentimes the longer presentations go much worse because people don't feel the pressure to get succinct and to focus on the most important points. They have plenty of time to talk about all the points and maybe talk about them at length. And so the key is though, when you are asked to do a short presentation, you don't want to sit back and go, oh, it's only 20 minutes. That'll be easy. It's actually quite the opposite. The less time you have to, to talk, it actually might be the more time that you have to prepare because in reality, you're probably going to need to prepare your whole hour to then tone it down to the 20. You're not, you're not going to go straight to a 20 minute presentation. Yep. Yep. Or you're going to be asked to come into the board of directors meeting um, at last minute and you have no slides at all. Right. Well, what I do a lot of times, that's one of the tips is, is, is I, I often, the higher the meeting, I purposely won't use slides. You know, if you think about it, executives get talked at all mm -hmm. the time. People come and talk at them present to them. And, and then, you know, they're just bored and overwhelmed day to day. I, I actually see people visibly relaxed when I come in and say, you know what, instead of going through slides, I just want to walk you through some of our thoughts. And the key is they'll, they love that because now you're talking with them rather than at them. And I'll show you what I do in these scenarios. It's super easy to do. It's not that I don't have a presentation. Let me get down to the right page. Um, it's that I'm not displaying the presentation. I'll show you my trick. Uh, and there's variations on this you can do, but it just simply within PowerPoint, for example, there's the overhead view. You can do four, six, nine slides per page. I'll have this in my little folio notepad printed out. And while I'm talking to the executive, I'm kind of checking off as I go through the points. And if we get in a really interactive discussion and towards the end, there's a couple of points I haven't yet made. I'll say, hey, before we run out of time, there's a couple more points I'd like to make. So I'm literally uh, in my head presenting, if I talk to main finding one, I'm effectively presenting exactly what I would have said and done had I shown uh, main finding one slide. I just don't happen to show the slide. And so 
if you're able, and this is also where you have to become a material, when you're to the point that you don't need to have a slide up and you can talk through the stuff, that means you really know your material and people can tell that as well. So it's kind of a circular reinforcing thing. Most people cannot go slide listen or therefore afraid to go slide listen. But when you can go slide listen or able to do it, uh, people actually love it. And so I always recommend that the more senior your audience, the less you want to show slides. And you might do like I'm doing here today. You might pop up if there's a few key figures to show, but you make it more just as a, a, an enhancement for an interactive conversation because, uh, again, they get plenty of, of, of talking at. Just, just go with the flow that they want to have, but make sure that you get your points in as you go. Awesome. All right, so we've got our strategic lens applied uh, to guide our build-out and whatnot, but we're not done planning yet. Section two gets goes a little bit further, um, planning for the design of the presentation. Could, could you differentiate and distinguish that from the uh, strategic ones? Yeah, so the strategic ones we just talked through are kind of overall general points about, you know, what ought you do in general and, and when ought you do it. When you're in the designing the presentation, you're getting a, a layer deeper. It's about in this specific case, right? What is the story I, I need to tell? Uh, what order am I going to introduce the various information? Let's say I have five key findings and three supporting points for each. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but I'm just saying, you know, you have to order the five and order the three within each. How deep are you going to go? Um, what are the key things you want that audience to remember? And what actions do you want, to, want them to take? So you have to go through all of that. The analogy I love to use here is that uh, when someone's making a movie, they don't just go out and start shooting scenes and then assume that at the end, they'll be able to piece together a really cool movie. They've got very detailed scripts and not just scripts for the words, but if there's, you know, say an action scene, you know exactly where everyone's standing, where everyone's going to move, et cetera. And so just like a movie maker is not going to go start filming until they've laid out all the details in a script, you shouldn't start making slides until you've laid out all the details of what you are planning to create as well. Uh, it, it's the, for the same logic and the same reason. You can't end up with a good presentation if you just start creating slides and hope they melt together. And, and is, how important is it to, to plan for the, the potential of having different kinds of venues that you have to present to? So I think typically it, it, it's important to, to keep into account where you're going to present because it, it, it can make a big difference. So if you're in a, uh, in a, business presentation and a typical, um, let's say, uh, uh, money-related decision, you're probably going to go into some pretty confidential information and some detailed numbers. And, and uh, you know, people are going to want to know exactly that's going to impact the business. Now, if you're presenting at a conference, for example, you probably can't share some of the technical details. You want to get across the general theme. And at, at, at a conference, you're going to tend to have a very focused audience. So in other words, I might have a business meeting where there's, you know, eight, there could be the finance team, the marketing team, and the operations team all in the room. If I'm at an analytics conference, everybody in that room is going to have some tie to analytics. So I can focus more on the analytics aspects of what I'm talking about, but then they're going to want me to go a little bit deeper. Whereas in a business environment, for example, I'm going to have to cover a, a broader spectrum of viewpoints, but I'm not going to be able to do them as deeply because I'm, you know, it's basically the same amount of time. So right. you definitely need to think through this ties to who your audience is, but even the purpose of the different venues are different, right? Yeah. A, a conference, the goals are different from a business meeting. And then if you're in an academic setting, they're, they're different. Again, in an academic setting, there's, there's much more focus on, you know, specific references and specific technical details. Cause oftentimes that's the, 
the, the reason why people are there, right? A lot of times you might even, you might purposely break some of these rules I'm talking about today in an academic setting because it is, um, it's supposed to be overwhelmingly technical in some of those. Mm-hmm. Though I still say the professors I've seen be, be most successful are still mostly following these. So while they're more technical than we would be in a business meeting, they're still getting far less detailed than some of the peers that are presenting. Yep, gotcha. All right. Um, so with regard to the, the technical details, more is better, right? <laughs> no, actually, but much less is, is much better. I always say you only want to reveal the bare minimum that you have to reveal to get your point across. So think about a glass that you're filling with water. You can pour a little bit in and you decide you want more, you can pour a little bit more in and you can keep doing that. But as soon as you overflow the glass, you have a mess and now you can't take it back. It's the same thing in a presentation. You should start out with the bare minimum level of detail that that you think you might need to present. And if someone asks a question and wants you to go a little deeper, then go just deep enough to ask their question. And if someone asks another follow-up, you can keep going deeper. The point is you're kind of filling the glass a thing at a time. Mm-hmm. If you fill the glass all the way from the start, you've effectively overflowed it for most people. And almost everybody will be unhappy with the presentation. In fact, the only people who will be happy are those who wanted every bit of that gory detail, which is a very rare person. Mm-hmm. If you start at a very high level and only go deeper as asked by the audience, you'll hit every audience's target level of detail because you're going to take them just where they wanted you to go through their questions. So I always start and put as minimal as possible on my slides. I may have some slides I can hop to in anticipation that I created in anticipation that they might want me to go deeper or I'm prepared you know, to simply talk to that. But you definitely want to start. If you're not uncomfortable with how little detail you're providing as a technical presenter, you're almost certainly way too much detail. You have to be personally uncomfortable as a technical presenter with the detail you're providing. Yeah. And that resonated with me too when I read that in the book and because it is hard. It's like, man, no, I got to show them this detail. And it really takes some iteration and rigor and discipline to say, no, nah, I really don't. Um, you really don't. And that kind of ties into, you talked about focus on how you're going to use the results. Right after you said, be careful, don't get overly detailed. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I'll just, I'll do this one real easy from a, from a, a, an analytics perspective, because oftentimes someone will ask a question, but they're not meaning exactly what they say. So I, pre- I show a propensity model result. Oh, how does this propensity model work? The technical person who built a model is going to go, oh, well, we take all these variables and we create a matrix, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it, how it works means something very specific to us. But what that person probably means is, how do I make it work? Or how do I put it to use? So the point is, when a business person might say, well, how does this propensity model work? What they probably want to hear is something along the lines of, well, you know what's going to happen is, every customer is going to get a probability of response. We'll be able to rank the customers. You tell us how many you want to target. We'll give you that many customers that are the top ones likely to respond. It's that easy. They go, oh, that's great. That's easy. Let's go do it. They don't mm-hmm. want to hear about, well, we're going to look at the, the air measurements for each parameter and we're going to be able to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what they mean. So you always have to think in terms of given the level of technical knowledge of the audience, when they ask me this question, what do they likely mean? And it's mm-hmm. often not what it would mean if it was me asking you or you asking me. Yeah. So it's, it's not how does the underlying algorithm work? It's how do I make this work for me? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Got you. Um, 
And you know, th there was one tip in there that I really liked too, and this kind of ties back to you know more is 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 better on the details is just pile up in an appendency section, right? Um, I love that idea because at least then I know, all right, I satisfied myself that I captured all the cool gory details and then I can just stick them in an appendix in case somebody wants to read them. Um, and we're gonna talk about when they should read them in a little bit. Right? So let's, let's go on to, um, um, oh, excuse me, I've gotta find my, where's my section header here? Uh, I want to talk about the the development sections now. Yeah, developing, okay. um, and and um, and you broke development down into separate subsections, wording it in text versus facts and figures and terms and definitions and whatnot. Um, give us a give us a good feel for the for the the over the uh, overview of the development experience and exercise here. Yeah, and these are, you know, a lot of these are, um, are, are much more uh, detailed in nature, but it's little things, you know, around wording and text. I'll just, I'll, you know what, this is a good one to maybe show another example. Um, around, um, around what, and this is a great example that ties to our last one of what are you going to show. Right? Using simple terms and definitions. So here, here's a, a classic slide that's actually kept simple in terms of amount of information, talks about some very common metrics that come out of a typical model. Accuracy, sensitivity, specificity. What I always say is, I've been doing this for years. I always have trouble remembering what each of these specifically means. And particularly those last two, they, they're very familiar sounding to me. So when I'll ask, like when students put this up, because this is what they'll default to all the time. I say, well, why don't you explain what these mean? And what they'll always do as part of that explanation is they'll talk about things like a true positive rate, a true negative rate. And my point back to them is your audience has no idea what sensitivity and specificity is. When you verbally explain it as a true positive rate, they may get it at the moment. When they see your slides later, they're going to have forgotten that. Furthermore, everybody kind of gets true positive. Why don't you go straight to it and just use the simple language? And if you talk about a true positive rate, nobody else other than statisticians and data scientists care about sensitivity and specificity. We do care about a true positive, true negative rate. And so it's looking for those opportunities with your language to keep it as simple as possible and then to map it to what your audience uh, would understand most easily. I really break it down into the lay, lay terms, right? Um, because you, you did talk you know, several times in the opening of the book we're dealing with non-technical audiences that need to make um, impactful decisions. Right? So let's not burden them with all this technical stuff that they have to figure out in their head how to you know, um, translate, right? Translate a form, gotcha. Um, and, I, and I'll show you one other one real quick for just one mm -hmm. second. It, and this is like a block and tackle one-on-one, but I can't tell you how often I see people do this one. It's <laughs> so simple, right? Use appropriate spacing. So here's what people often do, a lot of default PowerPoint templates. So here's just five bullet points, but that's really hard to read. First of all, I wouldn't put all five up at once. I'd do an animation like we talked about, but watch mm -hmm. what happens if I simply spread it out. It makes it that much easier to read. This isn't an overly pretty slide. It's not an amazing slide, but at the end of the day, just simply spacing out your points makes it that much easier. And so there's actually a little bit of a science to this. I always find that what I end up doing is, um, uh, other than you, you want a nice big font, I typically take 
one half to two thirds of the size of the font and add that as incremental spacing. So it's not just single spaced, it's one and a half spaced, one and two thirds spaced, and that kind of spreads it out for the eye. If you combine that with an animation, so these points come up one at a time when you talk to them, it, it tends to work out pretty well. Gotcha, yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about what, what, when we have to develop the numbers and the labeling around those numbers. You know, what are some of the key areas or some of the, I mean, you gotta, again, just a brilliant set of tips here. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the more impactful, poignant tips around labels and, and numbers. Yeah, let me, let me, uh, give me one second. Let me, let me pick one. I think that the, the key is you, one of the mistakes I see people, people make a lot is overusing precision, for example. So let me, let me bring this. One up. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, especially analytical packages, including Excel, put out all kinds of digits, right? All kinds of decimal places by default. You have to ask yourself, does that matter, right? You, you don't want to uh, use more precision than you require or than your results actually support as well. If you have a, a metric that's plus minus 1% and you're showing it to the thousandth of a percent, that's completely uh, uh, pointless, not only pointless, but misleading, right? Mm -hmm. But here, for example, is a simple thing. Um, you know, the, the point I want to make here is that yummy flavor outsold yucky flavor five to one. Now you can see that here, but all that detail you really need that to make this point. People mm -hmm. get hung up on it. And is anyone even going to believe, you know, that you have it down to the penny? What you really can do in this kind of case is round it to the nearest million, round it to the nearest percent, because your general point is it outsold it five to one. And if you just go back and forth between these two slides, they're, they're not that different. Yet mm -hmm. this one is much harder. It takes more mental energy to read and absorb than this one, which gets directly to your key point. So I think it's about looking for, you know, how much precision are you going to put in your numbers? What's the appropriate level? Keeping the, 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 the amount of numbers that you show to a minimum on any given slide. You don't want to show a whole table. You, you know, you might have a table in the appendix with 20 numbers in it, but your slides you're presenting ought to have, you know, one of those numbers at a time or a trend line of two or three of those numbers that you talk to individually. Because um, again, in a live presentation, people don't want to don't want to read a five by five grid of numbers. And even if you uh, thought that they might want to, now what they're doing is reading that grid and thinking about that grid and not listening to you. Which again is the recurring theme of the book. Anything you do to distract the audience from you is actually a bad thing. And and the display has should be always focused on the result that you're trying to get across, not all the underlying detail. Exactly. I got you. All right. Um, all right. So, we, you know, we got the text figured out. We're starting to figure out our our uh, proper display of numbers uh, and the proper labeling of those numbers so people know what the heck it means. Um, then we're into charts and images and layouts, right? Um, yep. the, uh, the more aesthetic things. Um, help us understand some of the key things that you see there. I mean, again, we got a bunch of really cool tips. Um, yep. Yep. I'll just show, I'll show you two, two quick ones here. And these will go very fast. One that people often make a mistake, you know, keep your colors in context. So mm -hmm. um, what I mean by this is here, here's something that sometimes people will pop out, mm. right? Where green is suddenly a negative number and red is a positive number. You know, there's no scientific reason why green is associated with positive and red is associated with negative, but that's, that's a standard thing. And, you know, 
if you simply flip it to green for positive and, and red for negative, people are going to absorb it much faster. Now, this one is a, is, is a really obvious example, but the things like here in Atlanta, Coca-Cola is famously red and Pepsi is famously blue. So if you're not going to use a Coca-Cola template when you go in and talk to them, you sure as heck shouldn't show up with something that isn't red-based and certainly not something that's blue-based. That would yeah. be worse. And, you know, and there's conventions like in the U.S. here, Republicans are red and Democrats are blue. I don't know why I can agree or disagree, but any chart I do that doesn't have Republicans red and Democrats blue is going to confuse people. Or if I, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that I even flip them, but if I suddenly use yellow and peach, nobody's going to know, you know, what that is. So that's, that's one, um, one example. And then one mm -hmm. other quick one I'll do is similarly, I think simple and easy to see. But I'm a big fan of, of using like, I call them accent graphics, little graphics to enhance. Um, and this could often be product shots or images from a, from a company, but you got to use them appropriately. Like here's one where I threw this uh, honeycomb out here as supposedly an accent graphic, but it's so big, it's overwhelming the entire chart, right? It's distracting. Mm -hmm. So even little things like if you're going to use graphics, it's got to be an accent that's kind of blends in the background that makes it look cool. It could be, again, you typically might have a product image or a, a logo here. Um, but it's little things like that, that if you think it through, just, um, you know, it's block and tackle. They're not hard things, but there are so many little things like this to remember that. That's why I called the, the book a handbook. You can kind of keep it by your desk and flip through it, um, you know, when you're developing and say, wasn't there something about this here that I should keep in mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, a lot of the uh, visualization tools um, over the years have uh, rolled out more and more really cool, complex graphics. Um, what's, what's the position in the book around um, using complex graphics? So I'm a fan of using whatever will get it done most simply. So in fact, in the book, I purposely use very basic Excel PowerPoint style graphs, right? Not sophisticated things for two reasons. One is that my goal is to illustrate very specific points like I just did. I, I don't need something fancy for that. But two, again, it doesn't matter whether we're happy about this or not. 95% of business presentations are done with basic PowerPoint and Excel graphs today, period. So I know people who are way into the visualization tools prefer to use those and they might, but most people don't. And so the, the challenge becomes even in Excel and PowerPoint these days, there's all these different formats of graphics. And I always say, Use the simplest, most familiar graphic that you can use to get your point across. So everybody understands a bar chart. If I can use a bar chart, I'm going to use a bar chart rather than something fancier. I'm not going to add a 3D effect to it. I'm not going to make it a pyramid instead of a, instead of a rectangle, et cetera. There's just no reason. You're adding complexity for not. Now, there are other cases where um, some graphics, like there's some of these flow diagrams that kind of show, you know, that they go from left to right and show, you know, how many you started with this many, you go down to this many. They're only appropriate with very specific types of data, but where they're appropriate, they really help grasp it. So I say, keep things as simple as possible. Embrace the easier graphics with the more, more standard options because people absorb those very quickly. And if you are going to use a, a less common or fancier graphic in your presentation, you should have a very specific reason uh, for, for doing so in terms of it, it, the value that, uh, uh, that it will add. So even if you've got some super sophisticated stuff in a Tableau dashboard, that's great. But for your presentation, you probably want to be picking out one, one component of that dashboard at a time. And, and maybe, you know, uh, even in some cases, 
making some of the things a little less sophisticated if it's if it's something that's for an audience that's not that the one that's familiar with that specific uh, visual. Yep. Okay. And uh, hey, what's your position on stacked bar graphs? <laughs> I uh, I hate yeah. stacked bar graphs yeah, mainly because they're so hard to read. And the reality is, when you look at it, only the very first level of the bar can be compared directly because then everything starts. So you can end up yeah. in some cases, literally the blue section on my left bar is ended before the blue section on my right bar has even begun. And so it's all, it's virtually impossible to, to, to get across what you're going after. So I always say, if your goal is to show the total, just stick with a bar chart. If your goal is to show the relative percentages, then you can do the uh, a 100% uh, a, a chart, which is still not ideal or a pie chart. There's, there's multiple ways you can do it. But the worst is that stacked bar where it's a total with the with the percentages broken out because yeah. it's virtually impossible in practice to take any of the important information away from that. Uh, Bill, one of your tips. First, I agree with that. I've been I've always looked at those stacked bar graphs and it's like, okay, like you said, I can compare the uh, first block across all the what whatever it's laid out on as a dimension. But then I'm like. Well, then what is it all of a sudden? You know, it's like, can I bring those down? <laughs> you know, you'll put them next to each other. Anyway, one other tip that you brought out that really uh, was impactful for me um, was around putting the cause on the x-axis. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, so this is one of the things. First of all, people always overinterpret correlation is equaling causation. So first of all, let me say this, as I say, and I'll show you this, as I say, put the cause on the, on the x-axis. Uh, I fully acknowledge half the time or well more than half the time, you don't actually have a true proven cause and effect, but let's just take a, a simple example here. If I had a weight gain by daily calories graphic here, I have weight gain on the bottom and daily calories on the top. Now, people's brains are used to seeing if there is a cause and effect, the cause to be on the bottom. So this would apply weight gain is causing daily calorie intake. Now, it might be true that as I get heavier, I actually need more calories because my body needs more, et cetera. But in reality, most people think about it as if you eat more calories, your weight will go up. And so just thinking through which is the most likely to drive the other if it was causation and putting the one that's most likely to drive the other on the x-axis actually helps people in, interpret that. Yeah, yeah, that, that one struck me. It was like, oh, that's brilliant to have a rule of thumb around that um, so that it's a very consistent cause, potential effect, cause, you know, potential cause, potential effect, even if it isn't truly causal. Um, all right, let's talk about getting ready to deliver, right? And in, in section six, we're back to present preparation again. And I love that because I mentioned earlier, I saw a lot of group facilitation disciplines and techniques hit, uh, uh, sprinkled throughout the book. Um, share with us a little bit on some of the key things we have to do to prepare to deliver the presentation. Yeah, I think the one that I, there's a couple here, but the one I'll start with is that you have to actually practice. You, you do not want to go into a room having created a presentation and then just on your first pass, trying to deliver it, right? If you write a, most people, even if they write in an important email, are going to draft it, sit on it for a little bit, reread it, and then maybe, you know, then maybe send it. 
we've already talked, most people, when they're building a PowerPoint, they go through multiple iterations. You know, many people will go and get in front of a room and the first time they've actually gone through their stuff in front of that horrible, horrible way to do it. You literally have to practice it. And so I can't tell you how many times I've been in a hotel room the night before a presentation. And I just kind of give a delivery to myself walking around the hotel room. And what it does is it forces you to verbalize all of your thoughts and you're going to catch yourself stumbling at certain things. And now you can make note of that. And I'll literally go and write down, yeah, I, I'm, you know, slide 13. I got to get, you got to figure out how to say that better. You'll realize where things don't flow as well as you thought. You might realize, you know what, it will be easier if I do point two be, uh, after I do point three, I'm going to reverse those, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it just helps you be smooth and make sure that you're within your time. So I always say you literally need to uh, practice your presentation at minimum for yourself. Ideally, you might have a, a friendly in your, in your uh, unit you're presenting to and or a teammate who, who would also give you some feedback. But I always say don't over practice either. If you sit and practice so much that you literally have yourself rehearsed, um, that comes across poorly also. You know, I always say it's only a half step up from reading your slides if you're basically reading your, your script from your brain. Um, it's going to sound very uh, prepared, very, um, you know, dull. Uh, you want to know generally what you're going to say. I typically have a few bullet points per slide, and that's it. It's bullet points. And I'm going to have to talk for a minute or two to those points. So every single time, even, even you know, the, the tips in this book, every time I deliver, a discussion about any of these points, I'm always saying something slightly different because I don't have it scripted. I just have the main points that I want to hit. And I end up getting there each time a little bit different and it sounds more conversational. And people would prefer a conversational presentation to a rehearsed one. And just, you know, you can think about politicians or, or people who don't present often like at, let's say a, a school, a school uh, band concert or PTA meeting where you have people who don't do this a lot up there. A lot of times they're sitting there and they're reading and they're, and you can tell it's, it's very much not the same as when someone is literally just there talking to you about what they need to talk about. And you can't presume that the room is going to just allow you to, to run with your script, right? They're, they're, they're going to go off script on you and you have to be able to, to dance with that. That to me is one of the most important things. If you want to go from being an okay presenter to being a really good presenter, it's not just knowing your materials, but then, you know, once you know those materials, it enables you to go off script. It enables if you were to throw me a loop and ask a, a, a question totally out of, uh, that takes me totally out of the order of my presentation, for example, that I had planned. It won't bother me if I, if I know the material. And you have to expect that. There's going to be people show up in a room, might ask a, what seemingly random question that doesn't even make sense because um, either they're not paying attention or they just don't get it. And, but you're going to have to deal with that. You might have someone who's a little bit hostile trying to trip you up. Um, you know, if all you're able to do is go in and read your script, all of those situations go very, very poorly for you because you're unable to handle them. We see, I think we see politicians get in this trap a lot where they're there to talk about topic A and they've been briefed on topic A and someone asks a question that wasn't on their little briefing list and they, they don't know what, uh, you know, don't know what to do. You mm -hmm. definitely want to be prepared um, to, to, to be able to go off script and you should encourage it. You know, again, I always say I have my, my presentation as I've outlined it is my best guess as to what that audience wants to hear. Well, guess who knows better than me is the audience. And so mm -hmm. if during my presentation, they're taking me in all kinds of circuitous routes, unless there's some reason I know that it absolutely will 
cause a problem for me to go the direction they want me to go instead, I will always go that direction. Because at that point, it's like revealing the information a little bit at a time. If I'm, if I'm getting to their questions one at a time in the order they choose to answer those questions, I'm answering their most important components of my presentation uh, by definition, or they wouldn't be asking those questions. Now, if at the end, again, there's a few points I think they would find highly compelling, but they might not know enough to ask because they didn't they weren't aware of these things, I'll make sure I get an opportunity to, to, to roll those in at the end. Um, but I typically find that the audience will drag me through most of the points I thought were most important anyway, because the, those important findings are tied to the important questions. That's why we have a finding, because we were trying to answer uh, questions up front. And, and I mean, this, let's face it, this is time box delivery, right? I, and so I, as a presenter, I'm needing to focus on the most important messages I need to get across and be able to do that in a time box manner, knowing that I, I might get cut short. So I might have to leave slides out. Is that a problem? No, in fact, uh, you should be planning for that. I can't tell you how many things I've had go wrong in the past around uh, timings. You know, you, people, first of all, people always show up late. Sometimes executives will get called out in the middle. They've got to leave early. They don't tell you this till they show up. If all you're prepared to do, if, they, if you had 45 minutes and all you're prepared to do is your 45 minute presentation, you're in big trouble as often as not. You ought to have your 45 minute presentation, but also in your head, know ahead of time, what would I do if I had to shrink it? So let me show you this. So you should always be prepared for a short presentation. So what I'll do, back to that same trick we talked about earlier, but in different contexts, I'll sit, and I'll go in and, and print these note pages and I'll have all my points in front of me. And as we're at, at let, let's say right before the meeting, I find out that my time is cut short. I'll go through this before and I'll start Xing things out. And, uh, or during the meeting, if questions are derailing things and we're losing time, I'll literally start Xing out slides and I'll know now I'm gonna skip those. So um, if, if I have even a few minutes ahead of time, I can go quickly hide or delete those slides if I'm live, I'll just quickly, you know, go next right through them. But the point is by having your flow laid out and then by having it in front of you, you can dynamically do it. I was once in front of over 1000 people where I was supposed to be sharing, uh, I think it was 25 minutes with another person. And unfortunately I was teed up for a second. And as much as I talked with her ahead of time, cause she wasn't as comfortable presenting as me. You've gotta be tight. You've gotta stay on your message. You're gonna be nervous. I know you get nervous up there you got to stay on your time or else I won't have time to do it. She rolled through instead of her 10 to 12 minutes and she was supposed to be closer to 10 and I was going to have 15. She went on for 17 minutes and I had eight minutes left to give 15 minutes worth of uh, material to well over a thousand people. Luckily I had done exactly this. And as I'm up there, I'm like, all right, well, now she's at 14 minutes. That point's gone. Well, <laughs> she's at that. And so I did it. And the, and the way I always wrap this up is, you know, people will remember what you showed them. They'll have no idea what you intended to show them, but didn't, unless there's a gaping hole in your story. So I, I think in the book, I even say, if you don't believe me, why don't you name two tips that were originally targeted for the book that, but that I took out before it was published? Right. right? <laughs> yeah. No one's going to be able to do that. that. You have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. You, you might well, have some ideas of, I wish there was this tip, but you'll have no idea if I had planned that. Mm -hmm. or not. And that's the same thing. So I knew that with that audience, I had the most important points out. I was still annoyed. I was obviously, oh, uh, yeah. I needed yeah. to get it across, but 
but the points I left out, the people in the audience wouldn't know. They, they heard the, the points that I delivered. Yeah, so going back to, again, what is it I need to tell you? Why is that important to you? You know, the implications, and then what do I want you, what do I want to recommend to you to take action on? So there's the school of thought of putting, here's my call, I'm going to list all my call to actions up front, and then I'm going to go through the supporting collaborative cooperative detail, and then I'm going to reinforce. What's your thought on that versus putting the punchlines all at the end of the uh, presentation? It's a really tough question. And, and I would say it can definitely vary by situation. And I'll give you an example of that. But my, de my default would be to give them the key things that you want them to know up front for a couple of reasons. One, back to the point, they might have to get up and leave early and mm -hmm. they'll have no idea where you were going. So the analogy I use on this one is, let's say, Mike, you're in town and I say, I'm going to take you out for a cool dinner. And I have as a reservation at the top five-star restaurant in town that's hard to get into. But I haven't told you that. I just said, I'm going to take you out to dinner. And we hit a hideous traffic jam. And, and we're nowhere near downtown yet. You might go, you know, Bill, why don't we just pull off here and grab some, grab something? Yeah. Because you didn't know. Now, when I go, oh, well, I've got this reservation at that five-star place downtown. You go, oh, well, I'm willing to sit in traffic to get there. Right. It, it's the same kind of thing. If people know you got some amazing stuff and they're like, oh my gosh, you're going to be able to tell me I can make this much more next quarter from these results. Now they're willing to sit through it and they know that there's somewhere worth, worth getting to. And if you get cut short or if they have to leave early, they'll know it's worth their time to come back and have a follow-up meeting. If mm -hmm. all I've done is start to build up and they have no idea how big my, my punchline is going to be, uh, they might not take the time to come back. So that's on the one side. Now on the flip side of that, if you have very controversial or negative results, then you might be best to save them. So if your punchline is, yeah, we better lay off 40% of the company, um, you probably want to build up to that and justify that and then throw it out there. If you throw it at the beginning, that's going to cause a mess. So I think you, there, there are situations you, you need to purposely hold it back because it'll just be a disaster if you don't. But most times I would err on letting people know where you're going. And that way they'll know it's going to be worth their time. And that way, if, if you get cut short, they'll come back. Okay. Uh, love all those tips. So we're in, you've got a few more minutes. Um, I just want to talk about the, the actual giving of the presentation. So I'm standing up in front of the room. I'm sweating bullets, but I got a jacket on. So nobody sees it. Right. Um, um, what are some of the most absolute important things that I should be doing during the delivery of the presentation? Yeah, I'd say with a couple of minutes, I'll pick two. One, you've got to be able to read the room and adapt, right? You, no matter how you think the audience is going to take your results, you're never sure until you put it out there. You know, there could be a point you thought was going to be controversial. No one bats an eye. Another point that you thought was just a, a, a no-brainer, suddenly there, there, there's a big argument. So I always say if you see that the audience seems to be concerned, upset, disagreeing, you better address it head on. I mean, I'll literally just, and it's very uncomfortable to do. Again, this takes force and practice. I'll say, you know, some of you seem to be struggling with what I just said or, or, or look skeptical of what I just said. Can you help me understand why? Um, and, and get it out there and then have that, that back and forth to try and, and, and get those things resolved. Um, you know, most likely you can. There are other occasions, of course, where you might just have an irresolvable problem, right? They go, you know what? I hear what you're saying. I just disagree strategically that we ought to go this direction. I mean, at some point you say, well, here's the facts that would support 
considering going that direction. I understand if you decide that that's not a direction you want to go. Um, the flip side of this is read the room when you've succeeded. And it, you know, classic, I know the salespeople I deal with always talk about don't sell past yes. Mm-hmm. If the room's excited and they're already talking about, well, yeah, let's get, how do we get this program started next quarter? And you've only presented three of your five key points. Do not present the other two. Mm-hmm. Encourage them to continue down the discussion of how to start next quarter. Because as you present those other two slot, uh, points, it's two opportunities to get them a little less excited or worse to raise a red flag somehow uh, in mm-hmm. their mind and then the whole thing falls apart so you know once uh, once the audience is sold just move you know move on quickly and don't uh, and don't be shy about it take the deal <laughs> take the deal yeah again bill this book i i swear it is brilliant and everybody ought to consider um grabbing it off of amazon um I will be using it as a handbook. I'm going to share it with my chief marketing officer because we do a lot of slide content. There's some great tips in there. Um, yeah. Again, Bill, it's always a pleasure and an honor to be working with you and, and um, sharing uh, your brilliant, brilliant work with our audience. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. So we're going to send, as we send out this recording, and we want to thank everybody who's going to be watching this after the fact. I understand there's a a little bit of a hiccup. Some folks could get on and some couldn't. So we're going to go ahead and send this out to everybody after. So thank you if you're watching after the fact. Along with that email, you're going to get the link um, to where you can get uh, the book that we've been discussing today. Um, which sounds, I mean, it sounds great. And I can attest to not being a data analytics practitioner. This is good stuff because I do give talks as well. And I do have to prepare quite a few presentations. And these are, these are tried and true um, tips and tricks and techniques. And, and I think that this is fantastic advice. So thank you so much, Bill, for sharing this information with us. Yeah, thank you. All right. We'll be talking to you later. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.